This morning, our scripture is from Philippians chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, about the great exaltation of Jesus in his uh, becoming man, not regarding, not regarding equality of God, something to be grasped onto, but freely giving that up so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could become exalted through him. And this morning, we're going to look at the passage that comes right on the heels of Philippians 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18. And these verses declare for us very, um, very challengingly, but very, uh, very encouragingly, what it means to live out our salvation, what it means to work out our salvation. Not just to let it be a static fact of our existence, but a dynamic interaction with the gospel that pervades everything that we do and say and think and feel and hope and believe. And so this morning as we uh, come to this, this passage, I ask you to follow along with me as I read it out from the bulletin. It says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Please join me in prayer once again. Lord Jesus, your word is open up here before us. We pray that you'd speak powerfully through your word. We pray that you'd speak uh, to our deepest need, Lord. We pray that you'd speak so that we could listen, speak so that we could hear, speak so that we could believe and apply. Lord, help us, we pray, as we study your word. In your name, amen. I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for all the, uh, the makeover TV shows and I'll dominate TV whether it's Pimp My Ride on MTV or it's Extreme Makeover or the one that just uh, draws tears from my wife and I's eyes on Sunday evenings, the Extreme Makeover Home Edition, I'm just, I'm, I'm captivated by it. And there's something so pleasing, so comforting, uh, so compelling about the glorious reveal. This old reality has been erased. This new reality has been created all in the space of a 60-minute TV show. But I always find myself asking after the, uh, the reveal, after the, the tearjerker uh, conclusion, what's next? Uh, when does the extremity, when does the, uh, the, the glorious makeover become ordinary? When does the maintenance start? When do they actually have to, to clean the new house? When do they actually have to uh, put gas in the car that they, they couldn't even uh, afford in the first place? When does the extremity take root in the ordinary? I want to tell you about an extreme makeover I had um, myself back in college. Uh, I, I drove a 1987 Pontiac Safari wagon um, all through college. Had the wood paneling on the side. It had the, 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 the rear-facing third seat. Um, my brother and I called it the tail gunner position. And uh, <clears throat> the speedometer didn't work. It had hundreds of thousands of miles on it. And it was just hanging on its last leg. And I drove it home um, for Thanksgiving, my senior year of college, 1995. And on the last day of Thanksgiving vacation, my dad looked at me and said, listen, we're going to go get you a brand new car. I'd never had a brand new anything in my life. 
I'm the third of uh, three children. Always got the hand-me-downs. Finally, my time had come. Extreme makeover. Forget the Pontiac station wagon. Here comes the brand new 1995 Honda Civic. And so the, the extremity had just entered into my life. The ordinary was soon to come. On my way home from, uh, from Chattanooga back to Davidson uh, on that fateful Sunday afternoon, I was driving my new Honda Civic. It had 12 miles on it when I left my house. And I picked up Rebecca Montague, a dear friend of mine, and she was looking a little peaked. Uh, we got about an hour down the road, and all of a sudden, my brand-new car, she got sick all over the place. Not once, not twice, but every half hour for the six-hour trip. Uh, we got sort of a system down to where she knew it was coming on, she could get out of the car. But my brand-new car, this extreme makeover uh, into my life, was ruined within the space of an hour by my good friend Rebecca. <clears throat> well, that, that's not where the, uh, the makeover became even uh, most ordinary. I was uh, driving up from the senior apartment to Davidson to grab my laundry one morning. They do our laundry at Davidson, or they did when I was a student. <clears throat> and uh, my windshield was kind of uh, uh, frosted over. I hadn't really learned how to use the defrost very well yet. And I was driving out of the, uh, the laundry there at Davidson, and there is um, sort of a an inconspicuous, unassuming little rock wall uh, on the side. And the defrost wasn't working quite as fast as I was hoping it would. <clears throat> and I was kind of fiddling with that. Uh, I don't know what I The defrost trying to make it work faster. And that's when I heard the scrape of metal and plastic against rock wall. This, the day after the girl had gotten sick all over my car, I wrecked my car brand new. And so this extreme, beautiful new reality it becomes already debased, already ordinary, already in need of desperate maintenance. It's so, it's so easy sometimes when we come to this passage of Scripture and we see Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's easy for us to think of salvation as this extreme makeover. This old reality has been erased. This new reality has been created. And now it's up to us, whether through frenetic maintenance, whether it's through uh, just being resigned to the fact like I was at I'd never have a new car again. It would never get better than those first 12 miles. That we have to just always be working at our salvation, always maintaining it, always trying to, to make the, the new reality stay. But what Paul is telling us here is that salvation is not a static reality. It's not just a fact of our existence. It's not just something that we have to maintain. But it's a dynamic reality. It is something that should pervade all that we think, all that we do, all that we say, all that we believe, all that we hope for. And so he's saying, don't settle for a makeover. Don't settle for a flash-in-the-pan extreme occurrence in your life. And he's not saying, he's, and he's saying, don't settle for maintenance. Don't settle for a fact that you're just going to have to always maintain an increasingly, uh, with increasingly diminishing returns. He's saying, work out your salvation. Get it out into all of your life. Become a thoroughly converted person. Let it penetrate and permeate and ramify all that you do and all that you say. Work it out. Because it's real and because it's true. It's the most real. It's the most true thing about you. Now, as soon as I say this idea of working out our salvation, I know for myself, two dangers automatically come to mind. First of all, when we hear this idea of working out our salvation, the first danger I'm always faced with is thinking that I need to work it into existence by achievement. That's exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He's not saying work it into existence, create the reality. He's saying the reality has been created. It's our job to push that reality into all aspects of our life. The other danger is we can think, well, you know, 
when somebody gives me the, uh, the theology test and it says salvation is by works, yes or no, I'm always going to check the no box. But <clears throat> when I think of that so often, uh, my theology is I just need to quit working. Any talk of effort, any talk of work, any talk of striving after godliness, any talk of obedience, I want to cry legalist or fundamentalist or that's just not grace-filled. And Paul says that's the other danger we can fall into. We don't work out our salvation just by resting just by stopping, just by uh, soaking in God's grace. There's actually effort involved. And so this morning he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now as we think about that this morning, as we think about what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, how exactly is that supposed to happen? What is that supposed to look like? I think Paul gives us four kind of guardrails, four kind of parameters for what that working out our salvation is supposed to look like. And in the first place this morning, he tells us to work out our salvation responsively. We work out our salvation responsively. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. They say this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, we are to engage in this, this, uh, this process of sanctification, this, this process of pushing the gospel into every area of our life precisely because God is already at work. We respond to his grace. We do not create his grace. So this lifelong pursuit of letting it penetrate and permeate and ramify everything we do and say is because God is already at work. He is the one who is giving us the will. He is the one who is giving us the power. He's the one who's enabling us to achieve his good purpose for us and for the world. We work because God is at work in us. We work responsively. Now, what about this fear and trembling, though? That sounds a little bit uh, like it's up in the air. That sounds like it's, um, it's not so much of a response to God's work. Perhaps it's our work creating the reality. Remember here, friends, that the fear and trembling is not the fear of dread and horror. It's not the fear that makes you want to run and hide. It's not the fear that makes you want to, uh, to be threatened and paralyzed by some uh, God who's going to come and hold you under his thumb, who's uh, just so stingy and, uh, and demanding and vindictive that you can't get away from him. Paul's talking about a fear and trembling that is not the fear of dread and horror, but the fear of honor and awe and worship. We're no longer afraid of punishment. We're no longer afraid that God has got it out for us. So it's not a life of nervous apprehension. It's not a life of wondering, hope against all hope, I can please him. But it's a life awed before the reality of the gospel, awed before the reality that that God stoops to our weakness. He condescends. He becomes humble because we would not be humble, and he's at work in us. We're awed before the, the the reality of God's gracious, assuring work in those who come to him with repentance and faith. We're sobered by, we're freed by, we're animated by, we're kept honest by the fact that God is at work before we even thought about working ourselves. What is this fear and trembling all about? It's it's about an absence of self-reliance. It's about an absence of self-assurance. It's about an absence of saying, I have something commendable in myself before the Lord. And it's saying, I'm defenseless, Lord. Will you defend me? Will you work for me? It's a true assessment of yourself so you, you can be awed, before the reality of God's work in you. Why can't we engage in this process of, uh, of um, working out our salvation? Remember Paul's resounding note of confidence in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, God began a good work in you, and he will see it through to completion. 
God is the Alpha and the Omega. That is why we can work out our salvation. That is why we can engage in this, this effort. Now, what kind of effort? What kind of, um, what kind of work are we talking about here? It's not a defeated, lazy effort. It's not an effort that, that says, well, God's at work, so I can just get by. I can get by with half measures. I can get by with, uh, with weak motives. And it's not a, it's not a, a frenetic, uh, fanatic effort saying salvation is, a, is about me. It rests on my shoulders. But it's, it's a proper sense of awe and responsibility, a proper sense of God working in us because sanctification is of his work and not ours. Someone has said before, uh, actually an old Puritan pastor named Walter Marshall, he said this, It is a true saying that believers should not act for life, but from life. They must act as those not procuring life by their works, but as such as who have already received and derived life from Christ and act from the power and virtue received from him. Paul is telling us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we have received life. We've received power. We've received the, uh, the will to do what God wants in us and through us. Contrast that with this quote. Uh, Walter Mossrell also said, If I grapple with sin in my own strength, the devil knows he can go to sleep. If I grapple with sin in my own strength, the devil knows he can go to sleep. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work. Someone has compared effort in the Christian life to a, to a long walk in the woods. Imagine yourself walking along a beautiful wooded path. Uh, you're, you're passing these beautiful trees. You're hearing the pleasant sounds of the forest. And all of a sudden, you come to a huge obstacle in the road. A tree bigger than you can move, bigger than you can climb over, has fallen across your path. What do you do? Well, some people say the effort in the Christian life is this. The greatest generation says this. You've got to buck up. You've got to make a decision. You've got to put a stake in the ground, and you just got to move that tree out of the way. And you can do it. So be a man, be a woman, and step up to the plate and just quit doing whatever sin you're doing. Just get rid of it. Now, what does this passage have to say about that mentality? It doesn't say God's at work. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about giving you the power to do it. It just says you've got to get busy. And you can get busy, so get busy already. A second response says this, perhaps in, re- uh, in a reaction to that response. Well, this, this tree, this obstacle of sin is, is across my path. Here's what I need to do. I just need to let go and let God. I need to surrender 100%. I need to just get my fingerprints all off of this uh, whole uh, salvation working out thing. Just mystically wait. I need to cease striving. I just got to wait till God removes this obstacle from my path. And in the meantime, I'll just sit here and watch and pray and wait. And perhaps you're in that situation this morning. You've got some immovable obstacle across the path of your life, and you're just waiting for God to let this surrender take him over, mystically remove the obstacle from your path. What's wrong with this? <laughs> the Scripture says that God is at work in us to will and act according to his good purpose. In other words, surrender, uh, working out your salvation is not just surrendering. It's also working. There's effort. There's, there's striving. There is energy expended. Well, perhaps you say, uh, well, it's, it's not really me doing it all by myself or God doing it for me. It's kind of both of us at the same time. You see, what happens is Jesus gets on one end of the tree and I get in on the other end of the tree and we both lift it and we move it off the path and then I go on from the next point. If we could even pick up the tree in the first place, we would drop it. 
we, we've messed up somehow. It's not about two train tracks, God's effort and our effort on, on, on uh, similar paths. Paul tells us here, we work because God is at work. We move the tree. Why? Because God is, by His Spirit, supernaturally created an ability to move the sin out of your life. So if you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm just waiting to let go and let God, or if you're sitting here this morning saying, I've got to get to work, we've, we've missed it. Paul says, God gives you the power. He gives you the will. He gives you the ability. You're the only one who can take the knife of the gospel and put the, the blade to the throat of that sin and get rid of the sin. You're the only one who can do it. But the confidence we have is this. God is at work to do that very thing. All of these different conceptions of getting the sin out of our lives hinge around one idea, trying to get God's power into my life. But the beauty of the gospel is God's power is already in your life. In fact, your life is a, is a display of God's power in your life. As you interact with sin, as you try to defeat it, as you work because God is at work in you, it is a display of God's redeeming, salvific work on your behalf. And so the question I have to ask you this morning is, are you struggling to be from your sin, be free from your sin this morning, by your own effort, by solely depending upon God's effort, or by some uh, amalgamation of the two? Or are you freed to struggle with your sin? Do you know so much of what Christ has done for you? Do you know so much of his power at work in you that you can look at your sins in the face and say, they don't define me anymore. This is not who I am. And I can actually defeat them because God is at work in me to will and enact according to his good purpose. Paul tells us to work out our salvation this morning, friends, as a response because God is at work. Wonder of all wonders, God is at work even in our work. But Paul doesn't leave us there this morning. He also tells us that um, we're supposed to work out our salvation as a response to God's good work in us. We're also to, uh, supposed to work out our salvation progressively, not just responsibly, but progressively. In other words, this undertaking of sanctification, this undertaking of this lifelong pursuit of letting the gospel penetrate and permeate and ramify, tells us there's no silver bullet of change. There's no secret Christian, Christian mystical experience that's going to free you from your struggles. There's no a hidden knowledge that if you can just get it, there's no technique if you can just learn it that's going to make the struggle go away. It's a long-term proposition. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Working out our salvation is a process. It's progressive in its nature and it's progressive in its practice. Look at me here. Look at uh, verses 14 and 15 with me. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without blemish. Notice what he says, that you may become pure and blameless, that you may become children of God who have no blame against them, no fault, no blemish. Now notice the interplay and the tension between these two ideas in this passage. Paul says, You are a child of God. You've held fast to the, to the word of life. God has begun a good work in you. God is at work in you progressively. But he also tells us to become something, to become pure, to become blameless, to become without fault or blemish. There's always this interplay, there's always this tension in our Christian life between our status as God's children, our identity as those who have held fast to the word of life, and our practice, our appropriation, our application of that grace in every area of our life. You are a child of God this morning, not by virtue of what you've done, but by virtue of what Jesus has done for you. By your repentance and faith, coming to him and saying, I have nothing in my hands to bring simply to that cross I cling. 
And then Jesus says, go back into your life and engage every area of your life for the gospel progressively. It is a lifelong pursuit. All of us in this room have an official theology. We would pass the theology test of salvation is not by works, I hope. Uh, But all of us also have a practical theology, uh, a real theology, where the rubber meets the road for us. Some of us say, yes, justification is by faith. Yes, I know there's nothing good to commend myself before the Lord. And yet we have an ulcer in our stomach because we're so guilty that we haven't read the Bible enough. We have ulcers in our, in our stomach because we're so guilty that we haven't done enough evangelism. There's this gap between our real theology and our official theology. And Paul is saying here, progressively, shorten the gap. Struggle, strive, close the gap between what you really believe and how you really act. In other words, he's saying, be who you are. Live out your status. Appropriate the gospel in every area of your life. Now, if you don't embrace working out your salvation as a progressive proposition, as a long-term proposition, as a, as a pursuit that takes your whole life, you will become wildly disillusioned in the faith. And perhaps that's where you are right now. Perhaps you come here this morning saying, yeah, I've got to let go and let God because I've messed it up so badly. I'm so sick of myself. I'm so sick of my sin. I cannot part with it for a second. Friends, know that it is a, a, a long-term proposition. Know that it is not your effort. Know that it's not letting God and letting go and letting God. Hear this quote from Martin Luther. He says this, This life is not righteousness, but it is growth in righteousness. It is not health. It is healing. It is not being. It is becoming. It is not rest. It is exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God's love for us, is it is big enough to handle the gap that we all have between our real theology and our official theology. And God says, progressively, more and more, work towards closing that gap. Let it be something that you do more and more, not all at once. What patience, what comfort... What encouragement that is, that God is big enough to handle that struggle we all have. And so this morning, I've got to ask you a question. What hangs centrally in your mind and in your heart? What, what, what defines you most? Is it your inability to measure up? Is it your last disobedience? Is it the sin that dogs you and will not go away quietly? Is it your last failure? You know, I work at Davidson College, and I'm also a product of Davidson College, and so I share all the same blind spots. And some of my my friends from Davidson College are here this this morning. But I want to tell you about a friend of mine who I've met at Davidson College. He told me a a really enlightening story. Davidson students are, by nature, very intense, uh, both in their academics and their creativity. And their worst failures are failure and success. Worst, uh, Worst fear of failure, because I might not measure up. I've been hardwired for achievement all my life. Worst fear is success. What if I actually get there and it's not as good as I hoped it would be? And I was talking with a student um, uh, last year who told me of, I sat down and I said, just give me a little explanation of how you got to Davidson. How did you get here in the first place? And he started to describe applying to uh, the top tier schools, all the elite colleges. And uh, he also applied to Davidson, which um, some folks would uh, rank in that top tier school. And uh, he... He described for me the process of receiving the, uh, the letters back in the mail. He would go out to the mailbox, find the letter from Duke University. He would open it up, and it would be a short letter 
we regret to inform you that you are not accepted into the class of 2000-whatever. And uh, he'd take that and he'd frame it and put it on his wall. He got the next uh, acceptance letter or rejection letter from Northwestern. We regret to inform you that you have not been accepted into the class of 2000-whatever. He took it and he framed it. He pinned it on his wall. He got several acceptance letters, one from Davidson, which obviously he chose and go to. He wadded those up and threw them in the trash. He hung his worst failure centrally in his life because he wanted to, to let that permeate and penetrate and ramify his whole existence. If he could just erase that worst failure, that would be great. Paul tells us here, don't hang your worst failure centrally. Don't even, don't even hang your process of sanctification centrally. What you need to hang centrally in your life is that you are a child of God, that God is at work, that there is a pro, there's a progression to your sanctification, that you are indeed and you will be blemishless and blameless and pure. Let that penetrate. Let that permeate. Let that ramify in your life, not your worst failure. Uh, you don't have to falsify your record as a Christian. You don't have to, to hang your worst failure centrally. You don't have to freak out over your failure. You can actually struggle through this process of sanctification. Paul tells us to work out our salvation responsibly. He tells us to work out our salvation progressively. But also this morning, if that's sounding too abstract and too uh, ethereal and too uh, uh, extraordinary for you, Paul also tells us we need to work out our salvation decisively. When we are assured that we are working out our salvation as a response to God's work in us, and when we are assured that we can actually work out our salvation uh, progressively as a gradual, persistent process to die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness, then we can actually, actually engage personally with vivid, real detail, decisively about our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own failures in our lives. In other words, we can know so much about who Jesus is that we can name, we can lay on the table what it is that keeps us from being blameless and pure and innocent children of God. Because we know how tightly and how tenderly He grips those who are His we can look our sins in the face in all their stark detail. No more sugarcoating. No more blame shifting. No more saying the other people's problem is more important than mine. We can own our sin, not generally or abstractly, but personally and particularly. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher from the early uh, 19th century. Uh, I'm sorry, late 19th century. Uh, he was called the Prince of Preachers. And he uh, would often have a sanctuary filled with people in London in the, the Metropolitan Church there. And he was not without his detractors. He was not without those uh, people who would come and uh, try to uh, get under his skin a little bit. One, day after, one Sunday after church, as he was uh, greeting people who came um, from the service, uh, a woman came up to him and looked him in the face with a crowd watching on. And she said, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, most uh, self-interested, most puffed up man I know and I just wanted you to, I just wanted to tell you in front of everybody exactly that very fact about yourself and the crowd grew silent looking at uh, Dr. Spurgeon and looking at the woman what would he say he said my dear lady you only know the half of it what a refreshing honesty he didn't write her off he said listen it's so much worse than you even know he didn't have to put his best foot forward. He didn't have to sugarcoat. He didn't have to blame shift. He didn't have to, to volley back at her with some sort of stinging remark. He just said, you don't even know how deep it really goes. And so, my friends, I'm going to ask you this morning to decide to deal with the, uh, the grossness, the junk in your life as more dangerous, as more important, as more real than, than uh, what you need to critique 
in displaying other people. Paul tells us here to do everything without grumbling or questioning, to do everything without complaining or arguing. Why such a specific command here? Because we need to be decisive in our, in our working out of our salvation. We need to be decisive in putting sin to rest. Why does he narrow his gaze upon these two particular pitfalls here? Why does he single out complaining and arguing? Why does he single out uh, uh, <clears throat> this grumbling or questioning? What is the root of these two sins? The root of these sins is basically saying, I doubt God's goodness in the circumstances of my life. I doubt that he can actually be working in me for good. I doubt that he can be working in me and is pleasing. I doubt that he can be at work in the mundane, ordinary circumstances of my life. And so I'm going to locate the problem with my life outside of me. It's my spouse's fault. It's my roommate's fault. It's my parents' fault. Their sin is so much worse, I need to critique it. I need to protect myself. This murmuring is a thankless, suspicious view of God, basically saying, I need to protect myself because God will not do it for me. It's the polar opposite of what Paul describes up there for us in verse 13, in 12 and 13. Fear and trembling says, Lord, I am defenseless. I need you to defend me. Grumbling and complaining says, I'm the only one who can defend me. I'm the only one who can know my needs. I have to protect myself at all costs. And so Paul says, get down from your privileged point of judgment and arrogance and get downwind of yourself. All of your sin at root is saying, God is not good and I must take care of myself. So he says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Because all things in our lives, all sins are tinged with this suspicion of God's working for our good. Where do you grumble and complain? Where do you murmur? Where are you saying, I've got to be in control or else I cannot be happy? For me, dead honest, two-hour church service, I'm working in the nursery. The murmuring starts in my mind. If you would just preach shorter, if they would just sing less songs, if we just get a, you know, a more tighter outline to this, maybe this would be, and I'd just start murmuring over this, over this stuff. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe you murmur against uh, being, being a minority in a, in, a, in a church like this. They, they just don't get it. They just don't understand the cultural differences. They just want to uh, kind of have this plastic uh, uh, leveling tool over the whole thing. I don't know where you murmur. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your roommates. Maybe it's with your friends. Paul says here, if we're going to be honest about our working out of our salvation, we need to look our murmuring in the face to recognize it and to root it out. Now, a bit of encouragement here. Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop a bird from building a nest in your hair. Sometimes the, the murmuring spirit comes across you. You just can't stop it. But you can't stop it from taking root. You can't stop it from building a nest in your life, letting it define and uh, permeate all of, all of what you do and say. So Paul says to define the sin, to name it, to recognize it, but then to root it out, to go decisively against it, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. G.K. Chesterton was uh, a famous, probably one of the most prolific essay writers of the early 20th century in London. Uh, a Christian to boot. He's written many books, uh, probably his most famous one called Orthodoxy. Uh, but he was always re- requested by the, the London Times to write different essays on different topics. And one time, the, the London Times sent out a request for topics on the, the topic of what is wrong with the world. And they received many long, thoughtful, uh, painstaking submissions. 
the shortest and perhaps the most uh, salient and the most to the point was from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote back to them, Dear Sirs, you ask what is wrong with the world. Two words, I am. Gratefully yours, G.K. Chesterton. The freedom of the gospel lets us say, the problem is not out there, it is with me. I am the one who is the problem. And the Lord is at work to change that progressively, responsively, and decisively. But in the last place this morning, Paul doesn't tell us just to work out our salvation responsibly and progressively and decisively. He tells us something strange, something almost counterintuitive that takes place when this process of working out our salvation is enacted, is engaged. He says there in verse 15, And in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Christians shine like stars. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the last thing I would say about my life. It doesn't shine like a star. It's not pure. It's not blameless. It's not innocent. It's not without fault. Yet Paul says here, when we actually engage this process of sanctification, when we engage this process of responding to the work that God is doing in us, it is on display for a crooked and depraved generation that it shines like a star in the night. Such a pleasing image, so much warmth, so much illumination, so much insight it offers us. I remember going to buy a, a diamond engagement ring for my wife, Margaret Ann, and I had this beautiful diamond in my hand, and I thought, oh, it's so, so pretty, so lovely, the cut, the color, all of it, uh, so, so magnificent. And then the jeweler took it out of my hands and put it against a dark piece of velvet on the countertop and it had facets to it I never knew existed. I could never even dream about. Paul is saying here, we, we hold up the gospel in our lives and look at our lives and say, look, the Lord's at work and it's so beautiful. And he says that when the Lord Jesus takes that and he puts it against the backdrop of this world that is dying and depraved and bent out of shape, how much more beautiful and how much more facets of truth come out of it. Paul tells us that we're supposed to work out our salvation in an attractive manner, attractively for a watching world. Now, that's, the attractiveness is not the finished, polished product. It's not us as Christians living detached lives in some Christian ghetto, ghetto some holy huddle. But Paul says we need to go into this crooked and depraved generation and live lives that are attractive, that put on display that we don't have it all together, that we are, we're miserably and woefully short, falling short of God's glory. But God is at work in there to make it beautiful. And so Paul tells us not to divorce ourselves from the crooked and depraved generation. We can't. We contribute to it just as much as anybody else does. We're actually responsible for it, as Chesterton reminds us. But he tells us that when God is at work in us, it is an attractive thing. It is a life-giving thing. It is a hopeful thing as we hold fast to the word of life. So Paul tells us this morning, Work out your salvation. Put it into practice. Get it into play. Uh, like, like yeast in a batch of dough, knead it till, till it uh, affects the whole lump. Get it into every area of your life. Do it as a response to God's grace. Do it progressively, knowing that it's always more and more. It's never in or out of God's grace. Do it decisively. Name the sin, root it out, and do it attractively before a watching world that has this to judge us by as Christians, that we are appropriating God's grace. We're needy. We don't have it all together. And Paul says something unbelievable will happen. We'll actually shine like stars. We'll be filled with joy when that happens. Knowing this, the final four time a year, um, I was doing a little reading on the uh, Internet 
and came across an article that says uh, the title was Foul Play. And it talks about how um, people distract the shooters at the free throw line during basketball games. And how they're kind of wondering, some scientists got together and wondered, is it really effective? Do they actually change the free throw percentage at the end of the season? And so they did a little research. In the NBA season for the 2003-2004 season, those who were shooting free throws in their home court without the distraction and those who were shooting free throws on the opposing court with the distraction were identical within one percentage point of each other. And so the guy started to think, well, you know, why don't all the thunder sticks, why don't the big fuzzy bricks, why don't the pictures of uh, scantily clad women distract the guys at the, uh, at the free throw line? Why, why, don't, um, why don't they shoot worse uh, when they have this distraction? And he found out that, uh, he talked to, to a neuroscientist, that when all the distractive motion in the background is going at a frenetic pace back and forth, it cancels each other out. All the flurry of activity, all the thunder sticks waving, all the bricks, all the, the shouts of uh, air ball, all that just cancel each other out. And the, the shooter can actually focus more on the rim and less on the distraction. And so he thought, what would be the perfect way to distract a shooter? It's got to be able to work in some way. And so he did a, little, did a little thinking on it. The perfect way to do it is if everybody did it in one time. So you're not having 300 thunder sticks and 300, brick, uh, and 300 posters waving back and forth intermittently. But once, everybody just like that one time. And so he decided to put it into practice. He called up Mark Cuban, who's the head coach or the, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and said, Listen, I've got a proposition for you. I think I've got a scientific way to lower the opposing team's free throw percentage when they come to your building. And so he said, Okay, let's try it. And what he did is at the appointed time, everybody in the uh, behind the basket just did a subtle shift. They got all their thunder sticks and just did it once together. And amazingly, the first two games they did it, the opposing team shot 30% less than they did the time they'd come there before. It actually worked. Everybody doing it at the same time worked, not all the intermittent activities. And so this guy has a, almost an infallible rule of uh, a science and free throw shooting here. This is how you can actually distract people by, uh, by doing it together. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the church, is that we all get together. And if we're all doing this frenetic working out of our salvation, trying to maintain and create some reality about ourselves, it just kind of cancels each other out. People look at the church and say, look at those busybodies. But when we come together and say, God is at work in us, and we can respond faithfully to His work in us, and we do it all together, it shifts the reality of the world. It pushes it, pushes it forward, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just for a second. We get a glimpse of what it means to be the church responding, working out our salvation, doing it in unison together for the glory of God. So this morning, dear friends, work out your salvation because God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And do it together as a church because that is the way the world is going to be changed. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we need your help so desperately. We thank you that you're at work and we ask that you would work mightily pray that you would equip us, Lord, to respond to your grace, to locate ourselves in that process of sanctification, Lord, to take decisive, clear action against our sin, and to do it in a way, Lord, that would become winsome and attractive to the watching world, so that many people would see not our strength, not our polished, finished product, Lord, but the process of us trying to respond to your grace faithfully. To do that, Lord, we need your help. And so we ask that you would work and keep working so that we can work and keep working ourselves. We give you all the glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen.